Good morning. You look on the side screen, we'll show you a shot of our website front page. And when you see that on the lower right hand side, there's a crisis relief tab. And if you tap that tab, it takes you to the next page, which is our response plan. Fellowship has a philosophy of ministry. When these global crises happen, uh, we determine, first of all, if we'll be involved and how we'll be involved. And one of the challenges with any organization, like any disaster like this, is how do you minister best? You can write a check to a big organization, and that money is... is not wrongly, but a lot of times it's absorbed in administrative costs before it ever gets to the ground. So one of Fellowship's concern is that we know where it's going, who's going to handle those funds. And to that end, we have partnered with, you can see the organization on, on the site, we've partnered with a group called uh, Asian Access, and they also work with Samaritan's Purse. Last weekend, um, one of the doctors from our Brentwood uh, location, uh, Jerry Foster, went over with a team. He'll be there three weeks with uh, medical teams over there. So Samaritan's Purse gets there early with great infrastructure. But the ongoing stuff is what really becomes laborious. So we've already cut a check for $10,000 and uh, from our global offering, which you've generously supported over the past. But if you want to do something individually, you can do it here on the website. We've got it all set up easily for you. Or you can give directly to those organizations or an organization of your choice. But these are the ones that we have vetted, and we believe that if you support them, you're, you're giving a good, uh, likely your money's going to go to a good place. And so that's our objective, is to be a good steward of those kinds of things. So that's for your information. If you prefer writing a check and not giving online, you can still do that and just put a uh, global offering on the bottom, and we'll see that it gets to uh, the right folks. Last week, um, if you were not here I want to encourage you with everything I can to go back and listen to Rob's message online. Um, I would put that in 35 years of doing this shtick, I would put that as one of the top pieces of exposition I have heard in 35 years. Um, we're blessed to have you, Rob Sweet. Um, extraordinary exposition. And uh, Cindy and I listened to the message and it was like, where'd it go? It's over. Keep going, Rob. Don't stop. Uh, and that's rare for a preacher to ever feel that way. <laughs> God's original and final intent was from a garden to a city, he said, to be God's people in God's place with God's presence. And he painted a beautiful picture of our patriarch. It is so important, not just the work that he did in the text, but to understand that passage. Because the Abrahamic covenant, this unilateral, unconditional covenant that God makes to this man, Abram, who becomes Abraham, is not just a story of a patriarch. It's the story of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And apart from God's promise that he made to Abram, the Savior would not have come in that fashion. God's program was established. You could say, arguably, in a sense, he chose Abram whether he wanted to do it or not. He's going to use Abram to execute a program, a plan, to bring redemption to a nation, to a people group, uh, that he will bless the entire world. We're thinking about the life of Abram as the life of faith. He's noted for that more than any other character in the scripture. And let's sort of get a baseline on faith for just a moment. Let me suggest that faith always involves a test. I like the word risk as a synonym for faith because faith often feels risky. Now, that doesn't mean we put ourselves at risk, but it means trusting God can feel like a risk, can seem like a risk. 
for most of us in this room, not all of us perhaps, some of you are more advanced in your spiritual maturity. I mean that in a good way, not a, not a pejorative way. You're, you're mature in your faith. And you, you've got some things sort of settled in your soul theologically. But for my life, I will tell you, I don't need God most of the time. I don't trust God most of the time. If Cindy and I are getting along swimmingly, if uh, the work is enjoyable, if our children are simply civil, I don't even care if they like each other, if they're just civil, if uh, my health is okay and manageable, if the weather is like it's been the last few days, uh, if I have money in the bank, my health is pretty good, my marriage is pretty good, family's pretty good, I don't need God. I build these resource structures around savings and health care and planning and living under our income and not having debt and eating sort of well and, um, you know, staying up with my medical appointments and taking care. And Cindy and I, in God's great kindness, have a fabulous relationship. We're closer than ever at 35 years. I can't believe how close we are in our marriage. Um, and when those things are going swimmingly, I don't need God. But you touch my health. You touch my marriage, you touch my job, you touch my kids. Some injustice happens to me, I get embroiled in some situation that drives me nuts, that is wrong, then I need God. Do I need God any less in this uh, house of cards theology of my life being what I want it to be than I need him when my life isn't working? No. But I live over there more than I want to acknowledge. And that's part of the problem with living in the West. Because we're so affluent and so successful. And we can talk about health care and savings plans and college savings plans and a future in retirement. And Boca and all the things we can talk about. A rosemary in this world. We can talk about that. You can't talk about that stuff in most of the world. It doesn't exist. So the Western believer has some unique challenges that a global believer in Nepal, in Papua New Guinea, in Asia, in India, in Africa. Doesn't even, these aren't even conversation pieces. So for faith to mean something, it seems as though the only time it means something is when we're tested. Now the corollary is a bit chilling. Because if we build these constructs where we have the resources that come to bear so we get our life to work and function the way we want, and we don't need God. And then when bad things happen to good people, we get real busy spiritually. Is the corollary that God allows those things? That's kind of chilling to think about. The older I get, the more convinced I am it's true. Because I have built a cardboard house of faith, and I don't really need God. But you touch my health, my marriage, my children... I get busy spiritually. When we face a situation where we don't have the resources to fix it, when we don't have the sufficiency to solve the problem, then and only then we might turn to God. Now that's presuming we've turned to our resources, our friends, our family, trusted confidants, and we still can't get it resolved. Then perhaps and only then do we think about praying, much less, God, what do you want us us? Our circumstances mitigate against our need for God. 
And at the end of the day, who we are, what we are, how we live this life, has to do with trusting Christ, not ourselves. And we have a test of faith in Genesis chapter 12. Open your Bible to Genesis 12, verse 10, we pick up the narrative. This will be Abram's first test of faith. You high school grads, a lot of this is one-to-one application. Not intentional, just the Sunday that this happened. It's going to be your life. You will be tested. Let's look at Abram's and see what we can learn from our patriarch friend. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please, say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. The first test of faith is bookend by a couple of features. Let me show you a bigger picture in the passage, and then we'll look at the details. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Abram went down to Egypt. And then drop down to chapter 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt. In my Bible, I have a line underlining those two phrases, and then one that connects it in the margin. Let's call it a bookend. Let's call it a pericope. It's a story within a bigger narrative. And one of the things Hebrew writers do, in this case, I would argue Moses, structure is everything for the Hebrew literature. Repetition, these kind of bookends and devices, I'll show you a couple of others as we go on. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to get a degree in Hebrew. All you have to do is look when you read. Look for repetitions. Look for these little phrases. And when I show that to you, you go, oh, maybe you've seen it before. If you hadn't, go, oh, that's easy to see. Down to Egypt, up from Egypt. So that forms a little bookend on this unit of thought that we're going to look at today. The first test of his faith was not only a famine, but the danger of deception. How is he going to respond when his resources are insufficient in this case, for food. Now, at the highest level, the story is going to endanger himself, his wife, and more importantly, the promise God just made to him. The reader or the hearer of this story in antiquity would feel a palpable tension. God's just made a promise to Abram that he'll be a blessing to the world. His descendants will be innumerable, that he's going to bless him. All the world's going to be blessed through you, Abram. And now there's a famine. So the reader's going, the story, the plot is thickening. What's happening? And the tension only builds. Twice we're told there's a famine. A famine, a severe famine. Famines are not inconsequential. Repetition is important. A famine, a severe famine. So the storyteller would hear it. The reader would see it. It's a severe famine. This is life-threatening. This isn't an inconvenience. If there is no rain, there are no crops. If there are no crops, there's no food from those crops and no food for the livestock, and you all start to die. The issue in Israel has always been and will be water, not oil, water. For three decades, they've been working on desalinization. It's just come out in the media. It's been going on a long time. It's just come out in the media the past 10 days where they have these huge desalination systems. They're taking seawater to make it drinkable because the Jordan is dying. The Sea of Galilee is getting pumped dry by Jordan and Israel. There's no water there. 
they're going to die of water. So they're taking seawater and converting it into drinking water, only as the Jews can do. They're brilliant people. Water's been the issue. There's no water in the land, no crops, livestock can't feed, nothing to eat. We're going to go to sojourn to Egypt. Now, the sojourn itself probably isn't wrong or sinful, but it creates a tension for the reader. It creates a tension for Abram and Sarai, as we saw in the text. He's afraid of his life. A sojourn was not a two-week trip to go to Egypt and go to the first Costco or Sam's Club and fill up the caravan and go back up to the land of promise. You live there for a period of time. If you go home today or if you're bored in the message and you pull out your device and do a geo map or a bird's eye view map of Egypt, you'll see this verdant green triangle. The Nile River, the Delta, the crescent area there, it's verdant. It's lush with green. And so even in captivity, remember the leeks and the onions and the produce they bragged about, Egypt having ample food. So they're going to go down into this area where there's going to be plenty of crops, plenty of animal livestock, plenty to eat, and they will stay there for a period of time. He risks a number of things. Number one, there's no storyline telling us he asked God. Number two, there's no mention of faith in God in this process. Number three, he will be an alien and a stranger when he goes to Egypt. He'll be a foreigner and an unwelcome one at that. Number five, he's got this added problem. His wife is beautiful, and they will take her from him. So at the risk of all those things, he nonetheless ventures to Egypt to get food. The scheme is in chapter 12. Again, look at verse 13. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. A half-truth is always a whole lie. He's going to ask his wife slash sister to lie so that they'll spare his life in the hopes of this scheme being pulled off. Now, this is the first time we read of this scheme in chapter 12. We're going to read of it again two more times in Genesis. We'll see it in chapter 16, uh, chapter 20 with um, Abimelech. Abimelech's a big word. It's Avimelech in Hebrew. My father is Molech. If you know anything of your Old Testament story, Molech, one of the uh, ugly attributes of Molech was child sacrifice. And so we're going to see Abram dealing with Avi Molech in the same way he dealt with the Pharaoh of Egypt in this story. If that wasn't bad enough, we're going to see him pull it again, not him, but his son Isaac. When Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 26 pull off the same story. And the irony there is rich because she is also described as a beautiful woman. Someone sent me an email or posted something on social media last week after this message saying... Um, the problem was Abram and Isaac shouldn't have married beautiful women. So, perhaps. It's easy to see the repetition, but the literature is trying to stress a point. A half-truth is a whole lie. When you don't approach God for help, when you spent your resources or have no resources, that's, on the, that's when faith begins. Now we're on the cusp. There's nothing I can do to pull this off. Where do you turn? Turn to Avi Molech, you turn to another Abimelech with Isaac, a different one, or do you turn to Pharaoh, or where do you turn? Well, we don't know for sure, but it seems that he learned this from his Bedouin roots. The Bedouin, or a people group, loosely called Bedouins, 
who are basically migratory herders. And you think of uh, shepherds as this romantic thing. Shepherds, it's a disgusting job being a shepherd. It's the lowest of the lowest to be a sheep herder. And so they're, they're migratory shepherds. They're nomads. They really don't belong in the land. And so they move and let their sheep destroy the land. They move on. Now, if you go to Israel today, which it is God's will for you to travel to Israel now, before you die and see it in the eternal state, you need to go see it. We get a heads up on it. So you can say, I was there once. Uh, but when you go today, you'll see the Bedouins. And they'll be outside certain parts of Israel, the old city, the new cities. And they'll be basically shanties. Corrugated metal, plastic tarps, look like, you know, migratory people groups. But don't feel sorry for them. They got satellite TVs on top of their shanties. And cell phones on their mules and camels. It's an interesting thing to watch. But the children are the ones who move the sheep around, not the adults. And they make a living in this encampment, this, this nomadic. They don't move as much as they used to antiquity. But this would be his lifestyle, what he knew. He chose to lie. The deception gives him time in the sojourn. The sojourn would not be quick, remind you. The sojourn might be months. We don't know for sure. But the lie is, well, if they take her uh, to be Pharaoh's wife, uh, they won't kill me. It'll take several months before she'd become his wife. We'll get out of there before then. Probably what's going on in Abram's thinking. The motivation, again, verse 13, that it may go well with me and that I may live. We may observe his self-preservation, but I want to give Abram a little more credit than just that. I think he understands if he dies, the promise dies. God made a promise to him. Who's going to keep that promise, God or him? But when you expend your resources and God doesn't seem to come through, then we pull our scheme together to make it work. And that's precisely what he seems to be doing. Well, the deception jeopardizes the promise as well as his wife. Verse 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Well, the scheme is unfolding. It seems as though her uh, beauty was as he depicted in Pharaoh's uh, men take her into the royal harem. Um, the suspense heightens for the reader. What's going to happen to her? Note in verse 13 we have this phrase where Abram asks Sarai to do this so that it may go well. See that verse 13? That it may go well with me. Now drop down in your Bible to verse 16. Therefore he treated Abram well. It's the same verb. Repetition. I want this to go well with me. I don't want to die. Well, it's going to go well. And notice the other one, that I may live on account of you, verse 13. The two clauses in 13, that it may go well and that I may live on account of you. And drop down to verse 16, for her sake. So precisely as he anticipated, uh, this half-truth, this whole lie is going to go well for him. And he's going to live on account of Sarai's lie. The anticipation builds for the reader. We're worried about this. But then all of a sudden he gets great wealth. The listing would take a while to unpack. But 
to summarize it, he went in an impoverished, starving foreigner. He's going to leave a wealthy herder of flocks and people. The number of people there, uh, a lot of estimates and guesstimates, but suffice it to say, if you've got herds and flocks, you need a lot of people to manage those herds and flocks. This is more than likely not a small entourage. Some have guesstimated up to 1,200 people might have been involved in this movement where he's coming out of the land, down to Egypt, and back up. And we'll see in the near future, he and Lot will so expand in their people, population, and herds, the land can't sustain them. So they're going to have to split and part company because they're growing at such a fast rate. It's a portrayal of great wealth but he's lost Sarai. And Sarai is in jeopardy. And the reader, the hearer of this in antiquity, the tension is now palpable. It's bad enough to have a famine. It's bad enough to risk going to Egypt. It's bad enough to do this without counsel to God. It's bad enough to risk the promise. Now they've taken your wife. What if Pharaoh marries the wife? What happens to the promise then? The promise is still in jeopardy, just in a different way than Abram anticipated. Well, God is going to protect both his patriarch and his promise, verse 17 to 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. When Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. God intervenes. He strikes Pharaoh with plagues. The uh, irony is not lost on those who, of you who know the Bible. In the future, we would have Egypt, Israel in captivity in Egypt and slavery in Egypt. And God, God is going to use plagues, severe plagues, to get them out of Egypt. Now we have the first patriarch going down there. God uses plagues to get them out of Egypt. Don't miss the connections. They're not happenstance. We're not told what they are. We're told the severity of them. And we're also, they imply that Sarai was unharmed by this. Now, God's hand against Pharaoh is a huge motif in our Old Testament. And we need a little bit of sidebar here to talk about this. When, when God comes up against Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the God-man on earth. Yahweh Elohim is the monotheistic God in heaven. And this will be Israel's tension for at least a thousand years. Is Pharaoh God on earth and his son the next God on earth? Or is Yahweh Elohim God in heaven? And this will be fought out in what we call a polemic. A fight between these two entities, between Pharaoh and Yahweh Elohim. The literature calls it a polemic. One illustration. The ten plagues in Egypt that you may remember, some of them, the frogs and the, the, the gnats and the locusts and so forth. The river Nile is turned to blood. Remember that one? There, the blood was a polemic. In other words, the Egyptians thought of the Nile as that which uh, fertility-wise bled and fed the land so that crops grew in that crescent. So they looked at it metaphorically as the god of blood. God says, you think the Nile's blood? You think it feeds your land? I'll turn it into real blood. Each of the plagues had a one-to-one -one corollary of insulting the gods of Egypt, of which there are chronicled over 8,000 different gods in Egypt. 
There's one God, Yahweh Elohim. You have one Father, one God. Israel, the Lord your God, is one. Don't worship anyone but him. Pharaoh, thousands of gods. The God-man, you bury him in a giant pyramid because he's deity on earth. And his son becomes the next deity on earth. Now fast forward in the plagues. The last plague, the great plague, was the death of the firstborn. Each of the plagues builds would take a while to explain it all, but the sum is the final plague is the greatest issue of the polemic war. Who's God? God, man, Pharaoh on earth or Yahweh Elohim in heaven? So the Pharaoh says he's God. His son's going to be the next God. So what's God, Yahweh Elohim say? You try to kill my son, Israel? You try to kill my people in captivity, Israel? I'm going to kill your son. And that's the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Why the death of the firstborn? He wants to show Pharaoh, his son's no God. I'm going to kill your son. You try to kill my son Israel, I'm going to kill your son. What's he teaching Israel? One God, a monotheistic God you can trust even in the wilderness. Thousands of gods and all the opulence of Egypt, all the opulence of the world, leeks and onions to score, all this great way of living in slavery. I'll kill that God-man. And so he does. Don't miss the Paschal lamb is a firstborn male, lamb or goat, taken and killed, blood put on the doorpost and lentil, angel wrath comes, destroys everyone whose house isn't under the blood post, door and lentil, right? All of Egypt is wailing and crying. Every firstborn, Pharaoh lost his first son. God-man was killed. That's a bummer when you're a God-man. Kill him? He's not a God, is he? He's just a man. And Israel escapes. Now fast forward in your mind. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Nothing in the Bible is happenstance or coincidence. This piece of literature is otherworldly. Because he's using Abram to illustrate something. There's a famine you can't resolve. You go to Egypt to resolve it, there's a problem waiting for you. I'm going to have to intervene to deal with that to get you out of it. Bigger picture, I'm going to call my son Israel. Uh -uh. I'm going to call my son Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Because the God-man son Pharaoh isn't a god. But the God-man Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, monotheism, one God. And he's the one that's going to save his people from his sin. Well, back to our text. When we acknowledge the sin and rebellion and hubris, sometimes God intervenes, sometimes he does not. Here he does. Uh, Pharaoh rebukes him. And if you know your Bible a little bit, when he says, what is this you have done to Abram? It's almost the exact same sentence he says to the woman in Genesis 3.13. What have you done? What have you done? Now, as to whether uh, Sarai was protected or not, all we can do is speculate. I will argue from the text, and it's just an observation. I can't prove it convincingly. But I would argue from the text. The overemphasis and repetition of the word wife is there for a reason. Look again at verse 17 and following. The plagues came because of Abram's wife. Verse 18, Pharaoh says to Abram, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now here's your wife. Take her and go. 
Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They escorted him away with his wife. Why the, oh, remember, repetition is important in Hebrew literature. Why are we going over the top with this wife, wife, wife? I'm going to suggest that she was unaccosted and unharmed during whatever time period she was in that sojourning in Pharaoh's harem. We can't, it's not one-to-one -one with Esther, but Esther, we know from Esther 2, it'd be a year or so before she'd ever see the king. We don't know for sure with Egypt, but more than likely there was some preparation period, and more than likely that was part of Abram's scheme. I'll go down there for a period, but I'm going to get out of Dodge as soon as I can. Now, how he thought he would get Sarai back, I don't know, but the fact that Pharaoh overstates this, your wife, your wife, your wife, it seems to me if she had been married to him and part of his harem and now his wife, I don't think he would overstate, the, and at least the text wouldn't overstate, here's your wife, here she is, take her back, it'd be innocuous, but that's just my two-cent opinion. Let's talk about this from the divine and the human perspective. Um, from the divine perspective, God is going to make a nation out of Abram and Sarai. He's chosen them as a unilateral covenant promise. In other words, what man does is not going to impact whether God uses Abram or not. Abram, in a sense, is a reluctant participant, we might argue. But he's called a man of faith through Scripture. He fails all the time. But God's going to use him nonetheless. And he's more referred to than any other patriarch from Jesus' own lips as a friend of God. And he loved Abram as a forefather. He's told in chapter 3 to go forth from, chapter 12, verse 3, to go forth from your country. Here, the divine is moving when he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, go, get out of here. Same verb, go forth. Go, go down to Egypt, get out of Egypt. And both are instructive for the divine plan, unstoppable. God has made a promise that cannot be changed. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan for Abram. Period. Now, on the human level, could Abram muck up God's program? More importantly, can anything thwart God's plan for your life? We read about these stories and abstract promises, and maybe we believe them or don't, but let's put shoe leather on it. The divine is, I've made a promise and a plan that's going to be executed no matter what man does. Can anything thwart God's will for your life? You blindfold yourself this afternoon, spin you around like a tail on a donkey, put you on 65 and let you wander around for a while. What's going to happen? Can you thwart God's will for your life? I'm not recommending that, by the way. We don't want to see you on YouTube later on. Sin can muck up our life. Abram did it here. He'll do it again. God has to what? Has to intervene to get Sarai out of Egypt. He has to intervene to get Israel out of Egypt. He had to intervene to you and me out of sin. He had to intervene in your life to call you to salvation. You did not study world religions and say, oh, Christianity is the best one. I'm going to check the box, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, and be a Christian. You might have thought you have done that, but you didn't. By his grace and mercy and kindness in ways we'll never understand, he called you to himself and you responded by faith. A great mystery. You trusted Christ and Christ alone without even knowing the world religious systems. You didn't evaluate 5,000 religions and say this is the best one. 
some way, shape, or form, you and I trusted Christ and Christ alone, and he changed something in your heart and mind and soul and brain, and all of a sudden you said, I'm a different person. And we sin, and we grow, and we fail, and we succeed, and, and spiritual life is up and down. Remember we started this study as a point-in-time conversion faith? When you trust Christ and Christ alone, we're talking about saving faith. We're talking about living faithfully, not that point-in-time conversion saving faith, but living faithfully sanctification, right? We've talked about this many times. Our sin will always complicate the matter. No question about it. And sometimes God does not withhold judgment from our sin. But now he's building a people. And he's going to do that unstoppably. Abraham, Abram at this point, must be protected because God made a promise for a covenant. And through that covenant will come Jesus Christ. Is the promise he made to you to seal you until the day of redemption any less a promise? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will forgive you again and again and again. If you confess your sin, I promise to forgive you. I'm in the process of sanctifying you. I'll be merciful to you. I'll be kind to you. I'll bless you. I'll care for you. But Egypt is very tempting. So when we run out of resources, do we go to Egypt to fill them? Or do we trust him? And I think, put this in the category of seems to me, okay? Seems to me. The edge of our faith, the cusp of our faith, is not when the props are all in place. Cindy and I like each other. Our health is good. We, we are, 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 we're busy. We enjoy our jobs. Our kids are, kids are civil. Uh, our friendships are fine. We can go and come as we please. Yada, 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 yada. The American dream. I don't need God over there. But boy, when you touch my child, you touch me, you touch my health, you touch my wife, I'm accused of something, injustice occurs, strife occurs in the workplace, somebody gets fired. Oh, I'm going to bear the resources of Egypt to figure this out. We all do this. Go to the wife, go to the husband, go to our friends, support, build our alliances, fight the thing. Where do I just trust Christ? Where do I just stop? And say, faith is confident, assurance of things hoped for with the convictions of things not yet seen. I don't see how I'm going to get out of this. I don't see how God's going to intervene. I don't know if he's going to intervene. It seems to me the only time you and I have faith is when he allows something to happen and you and I have that decision. Do I go after all my resources to fix it? and my friend's resources to fix it, and I exhaust and exploit all my network to try and resolve this thing, maybe I even get legal about it and sue somebody. Or do I stop? Lord, I have no resources. I don't know where the food's coming from. I don't know what to do in the famine. I don't know if I should risk my family going to Egypt or elsewhere. White flag of faith. Help me, Lord. What do I do? It seems to me the troubles we're led in and out of are opportunities to say, I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to try and make it work myself. And we are very self-sufficient people in the, in the West. We're very confident. We're very cocksure. We're proud. We'll never ask for help nonsense. We end is where we begin. 
toward the Negev, down to Egypt, up from the Negev. By the way, something wonderful happened to Abraham in the middle of all this. He's wealthy now. The list is long. Unnamed male and female servants. I can't prove it. I'm 99% sure one of those unnamed female servants was named Hagar. She's an Egyptian maidservant who will take care of Sarai. And that will begin yet another challenge in the Abram story. Ishmael, walk before you. No. You'll have a son. I'm past childbearing years. Relatively speaking, I'm almost 100 years old. My wife's uterus is dead. I'm dead. How can I have a child? Where are the countless children you told me I was going to have? No resources to solve this problem. Go into the wrong woman. The battle that will happen between Ishmael and Israel will go on for a generation. The point is, something wonderful may happen when you and I scheme. It doesn't mean it's good. He got flocks and herds and servants galore. It doesn't mean it's good. You see, the Christian life really is, if God took everything away from you, would you trust him nonetheless? If Job said, though he slay me, I will love him, I will serve him. If God took everything away, would that promise be good enough for you? Or would you and I retreat to our self-imposed prescriptions for how to make it work. Trust him when it doesn't make sense. Trust him, you high school grads, when you go off, your faith is going to be wire-brushed. They're going to challenge you every which way you know. I promise you, you go to the major university today, they're going to eviscerate everything you believe. They're going to denigrate this Bible. They're going to make a fool of you for believing in Jesus. You're going to be mocked as a Christian. You're going to be hammered about the head and shoulders, and you're going to begin to doubt. Because all your resources are gone, and now you're looking at Egypt. looks pretty dang good. Or you get a group of friends that are an IV or crew or RUF or whatever it is you're part of, and you walk with other kids who are just as scared and just as beaten up as you, but they're saying, you know, I, I believe this. I don't have all the answers, but I'm hanging on to Christ and his word because his promise is eternal. If his promise to Abraham was good, is it good to me? That's your bottom line question. If he touches your marriage, he touches your health, he touches your children, he touches your grandchildren. If he allows horrible things to happen to good people and you want to blame him for it and shake your fist at him, or do you say, I've got no resources for this Lord, I've got nowhere to turn but you, you're the only place I can go. To you I cling. The best news is the base of Calvary is level ground. You don't have to be smarter or better than anybody else. You just cling to the base of Calvary by faith. I trust you when all my experience tells me otherwise. That's how we face the tests of faith. Will we always pass them? No. No. Don't worry about it. Pick yourself up metaphorically. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Confess. Because this sanctification is a bumpy ride. <laughs> Anybody who tells you otherwise, run away from it. It's a bumpy ride. 
And it should be no surprise he touches us where we're soft. Not where we're secure. The corollary is scary to me. But the longer I live the Christian life, the more I'm convinced it's the only way he gets our undivided attention. He's a loving, good, compassionate God. He wants one thing from you and me. To trust him. To love him, to trust him, to believe in his word, no matter what the world tells you. Father, we love you today. We want to love you well. Whether it's our marriage, our health, our children, our grandchildren, our jobs, lawsuits, injustice, malpractice, all the things that we're going to all face at some point or another. Help us to be men and women who smile at the future, who look beyond the present worry and fear when we've exhausted our resources and we say, I, I trust you, Lord Jesus. I don't see an end. I don't see an outcome. I don't know, but I need you to intervene. And then help us to rest and not fear trust and not worry, to take a deep breath and exhale knowing that you're God and you're sovereign and you love us no matter what our circumstances try to tell us. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a faithful week.